When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. It's time to let it roll. Today we're going to talk to biographer Paul Trinka about his book, Iggy, Open Up and Bleed. Like any card-carrying member of Generation X, Iggy and the Stooges were absolutely formative influences on why a demand from a rock frontman, and Trinka's book is the definitive one on the subject. As always, you can access our YouTube playlists and learn more about the episodes on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. This week, Paul and I talk about the dichotomy between the erudite and charming Jim Osterberg and his wild man stage persona, Iggy Pop. We'll also talk about Iggy's troubled relationships with his various sidemen and writing partners, and the multiple times David Bowie stepped in and saved Jim's life and Iggy's career. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome back to the Let It Roll podcast. This is Nate Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by Paul Trinka, author of Iggy, Open Up and Bleed. I think the definitive biography of Iggy Pop, Paul what inspired you to choose Iggy Pop as a subject? I guess in that terrible phrase, I was always a fan of Iggy. Um, I grew up in Hull in Yorkshire in the middle of nowhere. It's a bit like the Midwest, you know, and there was nothing happening. Um, so when I was 15 and I first heard Raw Power, that was like a signal from another dimension or another universe. And in a real way, you know, it did have an effect on the on the course of my life. I was looking the other day uh, a diary for when I was 16 and taking my kind of big exams. And I spent most of the time rehearsing with a punk band and we did about four Stooges songs in our set. And we played right through the summer and, you know, through a long chain of events, um, it ended up with me writing for magazines and doing books. So Mr. Osterberg in some ways is responsible for it all. Well, that's uh, that's very cool, and it's and it's it's a testament to Iggy. I mean, if you had told somebody in 1970 that you were going to grow up to be a rock critic and that you were going to write a hardback biography of Iggy Pop, I mean, people would have told you the market for that was nil. But by the time you wrote that, you know, in the 2007, the Iggy was a going concern, and so for your publishers, I mean, how much of it was I mean, what was the transformation of Iggy from a cult act to a legend, a rock and roll Hall of Famer and a star in the 2000s? Well, that's an interesting process, isn't it? Because I guess there's an analogy there to the Velvet Underground. Um, but his is a un pretty unique career of, of somebody who's absolutely reviled and hated at the time. And... And yet, you know, is completely vindicated 30 years on. And I know when I've talked to him about it, he'd say all oh, the bands who made it big in the 70s, they kind of toured themselves into the ground and, and went mad, you know. So 
in a way it worked out nicely for him but sometimes quality does out you know it doesn't all the time but i think you know if nothing else with Iggy, his influence on other people you know several generations of of people is i guess what brought him and the stooges back into the to the foreground and of course it was who who'd have predicted in 1974 or 1975 that he'd inspire the Sex Pistols and the Ramones in, you know, a few years later. And then let alone Kurt Cobain, in, you know, in, in the very early 90s. So I guess it was just the fact that the music he created in the end became mainstream, but it took a long time. It certainly did. And one one of the most sort of poignant parts of your book is is your description of Young Jim Osterberg, and I want to get into that split between Jim Osterberg, the person, and Iggy Pop, the persona. But for right now, I want to talk about your narrative. And you, and you tell that story of young Jim Osterberg going from most likely to succeed and vice president of the student council. And then he gets the rock and roll bug, and he's the singing drummer in a popular band, the Iguanas. And then he moves to Ann Arbor, and he's in, a, in the Prime Movers, a very hip uh, polished R&B band, and then you know he he, he apprentices with Sam Lay as a blues drummer, and then he makes this hard switch to wanting to be a singer of this art noise combo, which the Stooges was the psychedelic Stooges they were really originally known were like nothing anybody had seen before, and where I'm losing the thread of my question, I'll cut this <laughs> a, little, a little bit, but the um the point i was getting at was you you create the narrative around the peak of the original stooges the period when they record raw power after they've toured for a while and they've got a full set of songs they've all become relatively accomplished players they're a tight unit they record this incredible album and within a few months iggy is a junkie do you think did they ever have any commercial prospects in the 70s if they'd managed to stay clean and be professional and do the kind of shows like he was doing at the cincinnati festival where he's walking on the crowd and he's this beautiful young you know rock and roll avatar or was this just hopeless were the stooges just hopelessly out of their time in the early 70s or or did they have a fighting chance that's that is um an intriguing question but i, I think they were just too far out there for for people to handle. I mean, remember that in 1969, it was all about being a consummate master of your instrument, you know. And um, so just to go and record something so outrageously basic just was too much for people. And um, it, it was just too different to everything else. And it, I, I don't think the people... I don't think the people ever would have grasped it at that time. And obviously there are two versions of the Stooges. There's the Ron Ashton one, the, the, the Stooges, you know, without, as opposed to Iggy Pop and the Stooges. And, and the first one was even more kind of um, crazed in a way. And if you think of something like Funhouse, you know, it's a, now it's a very hardcore album. It's probably my favourite. And then Raw Power is actually a lot more commercial. You know, Raw Power is definitely... You know, you can tell Alice Cooper's on the up by then. You know, it's got that kind of glam edge to it as well. You've got a new guitarist, James Williamson, wearing sort of massive platform heels. And and there was just a bit more interest there and just a few more people talking about him. But it was still too out there. And 
in answer to the question about how whether they could have made it, I think the people who make it in a way are the ones who look at everything that's around and and kind of synthesize it or crystallize it into a new form and, and actually think about how it's going to be taken up by an audience. And certainly one kind of um, um, landmark in the story, David Bowie, you know, learned how to do exactly that. But the Stooges didn't really think about how that music would be taken by an audience. It's just sort of inside them and they had very little control of it and it just had to come out. But it was such a, a kind of primeval expression of who they were that it was impossible to channel it into a kind of um, a commercial area. And, um, and then who knows if they actually wanted to be big anyway. I mean, you know, to some extent they were influenced by the Velvets, at least they got John Kalin to produce, and the Velvets didn't actually set the charts on fire first time around either, did they? No, definitely not. Although they drew, you know, in some parts of the, the U.S., like in the Boston Tea Party, they were filling, you know, Fillmore East-sized arenas with, with, you know, they had a regional fan base in Boston, Cleveland, New York City, and the Stooges had their base, or they were accepted to some extent by the MC5's large base at the time at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right that it was just too too out there, too ahead of its time, too in contradiction to the mood of the late 60s. And I think um, this, I want to get to this persona thing because, you, you know, you make it very clear. It's, it's really a biography of Jim Osterberg and this creature, Iggy Pop, who's a persona that Osterberg deliberately created, but it seems pretty clear. I mean, it was he was even clinically diagnosed at one point as having lost control of that persona. Yeah. What well, what happened there? Well, it it is a fascinating subject, and and actually, when I did a doctorate last year, I was looking at the notion of a persona and what it is, and there's you know quite a, a fair amount of writing about this and. There's a couple of precedents, and probably Oscar Wilde is the best one. Now, Oscar Wilde was was a creation. You know, he he kept the same name, but he kind of developed himself and realised that Oscar was this kind of quantity that he could sell. And and certainly in the pop field, Iggy is one of the most extreme examples of of a persona because really, you know, there is this duality there. And throughout the book, Jimmy. Um, behaves differently to how Iggy behaves and you know I, I wrote it that way and I knew that was quite extreme sometimes I'll write about Jim and sometimes I'll write about Iggy and you know I thought about it a lot and thought you know can I do this is it pretentious is it too much for people to follow and then in the end I just thought well this is how it is you know this is the reality um, this is Jimmy do, you know nice Jimmy doing this and then this is Iggy doing the other stuff and 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 you very much see Iggy being created you see it described by his bandmates and certainly Ron Ashton was was the fly on the wall and he saw Iggy as the kind of synthesis of, of Jimmy Osterberg and then then the Stooges themselves you know and and Iggy definitely took from all of those guys you know Jim Osterberg was voted most likely to he was class vice president you know he was in the debate club he was a, he was a straight guy you know he wasn't an outcast by any means the other guys were an out, were outcasts and 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 Iggy 
was a kind of function of that. Jimmy tapped into those guys. And so Iggy was a kind of a creation of who he wanted to be. But Iggy was also a really vital psychic armor because that that really left field music that the psychedelic stooges played in the early days that just inspired hatred you know visceral hatred from people um iggy was just a way of 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 just of, of protecting himself and, and and this psychic armor that just wouldn't let the hatred bug him or or, or upset him so it was it was vital and really iggy in the end became the place where he could make his art and and i think it's certainly true that in an album like funhouse that was definitely recorded by iggy it wasn't called iggy poppers yet and um you know in the character of iggy so jim osterberg's very charming i've met jim osterberg and um and but the but the but the producer met iggy pop who was truculent and difficult and he had to deal with ron ashton so uh, iggy is definitely a thing a persona and a very kind of 360 degree persona and one that jim osterberg was not always in control of as you point out you know he was hospitalized because that and there's just too much going on for for his computing power to to kind of maintain and things fell apart yeah and this uh his meeting with the group that he called the Dum Dum Boys in a song on the Lost for Life album about 10 years after he met them. I mean, Ron Ashton, his brother Scott Ashton, and Dave Alexander, their friend. You know, Iggy was somebody, or young Jim Osterberg was somebody who was very much able to surf the waves of the 60s. I mean, he's playing drums with bluesmen. He's, he's playing in a variety of bands. He's hanging out with these hip, engaged, active people. He's reading books. You know, he's he's very much you know, a person of his time, whereas the Ashtons are sort of behind their time in that they're laggards and dullards and thugs, and yet they're also ahead of their time. And Iggy's zoomed in on that. And and they are also geniuses, you know, and but they are out of their time, you know, because the wonderful thing about this book is in a way I, I wrote it over a kind of nearly a 20 year period because I thought about doing a book in the mid 90s and had gone out to see Ron in Ann Arbor where he still lived and then I'd seen Scott there as well I'd seen Steve McKay out in San Francisco and I saw Billy Cheatham the original or the rhythm guitarist who joined them in 1970 and they they were all lost people you know they were lo- there were people who affected me very deeply and but hanging out with them was just kind of insane as well you know with ron ashton he's bringing out a selection of machine guns he's talking about which aliens are safe if you encounter them at night you know um then he's bringing out all of his his weed and his cocaine and then his mom turns up and asks him if he's going to look after the cats properly because she's going off to an antique fair you know it was just like nothing you could contemplate and you know, in in this business where you're already always seeing people mediated by their PRs, you know, who's telling you that's your forty five minutes now. You forget to get better get out. Just just spending a night with Ron Ashton, you know, I don't know what time he got up, but I guess I got round to his house at eleven in the morning, and I was there it's at eleven at night, and I was there till seven in the morning. So these guys were out of place. They were out of time. They were misfits, you know, like so many people around the world and in America are, but somehow they managed to transmute that into 
amazing music, you know, which is still miraculous to me, really. Yeah, I mean, there were clearly savants uh, of of rock and roll. And I mean, you know, somebody like Scott Ashton, the drummer, his nickname was Rock Ashton. And he's just an avatar of rock and roll. I mean, you compare him to Marlon Brando in here. And if you read stories about, you know, the MC5 or Wayne Kramer, these in the in the Detroit rock scene, I mean, Scott Ashton was sort of like a one-man thug army. You know, if you showed up with your five toughest guys and the other side had Scott Ashton, you, you probably threw in the towel. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And and uh, and so, you know, I think you do a really good job of telling that story of how this bright, artistic Jim Osterberg meets these sort of atavistic thugs and zeroes in on them as the inspiration for his art. I mean, it's the classic story of like, you know, the Beach Boys with Brian Wilson writing about it and Dennis Wilson living the surfer mm-hmm. lifestyle or the Rolling Stones with Mick Jagger writing about it and Brian Jones living it. And Iggy sort of took on both roles, you know, he, he modeled himself on them and then created this Iggy character that went on beyond where they'd even been. And, and, and so, you know, I just, I found that fascinating. I thought that was something you really did. And, and your portrait, I remember the article about Ron Ashton living in his mom's basement when that came out in the nineties, that made a huge impact on the circle of punk rockers that I was in. I mean, it, it was just such a vivid story and it even echoed back because Iggy, you know, wouldn't tour or play with the Ashton brothers or even talk to him because he had such contempt for them as losers that were living with their mom. And it wasn't until Mike Watt and Jay Maskus and others sort of resurrected them and that they had a viable club touring act that Iggy even considered uh, a Stooges reunion. Absolutely. You know, it is that kind of hard boiled attitude as well. And, when I spent time talking to Ron, you know, about how deeply wounded he was, Scott was a bit different, you know, because Scott had, uh, had, you know, briefly played with, with Jimmy on a tour in 1978. And, um, but yeah, Ron was very damaged and, um, and Iggy treated them with a real kind of contempt, I guess, you know, but then he, he'd also treat them with, you know, it's very, very hard to analyse. You know, I'm sure his his feelings about them were very multifaceted. And probably a little bit of it is, you know, we hate it when people do us a favour, you know, when you're in debt to somebody. I think that's definitely a little part of it, you know, where those guys knew him. They knew him when he's kind of started out and uh, and then ultimately he became the star. And, you know, you always worry when you, you re-meet people who saw you being created you know and um who've got because they've got something on you as well so i'm sure that was part of it too and and in the end he's getting the studios together because i can remember him telling me about it close to the time it's just a a very straightforward commercial transaction and when he described it to me you know i just found it really really weird you know just bizarre but but as ron says hey that's singers for you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and it and it and it was sort of a perfect circle. I mean, it was definitely redemption for the Ashton brothers, and for anybody who's a fan of the original Stooges, it was really heartwarming to see them getting to enjoy their success and do those big tours and the reunion album. And Ron Ashton didn't live to see the Hall of Fame induction, which happened after your book was published, but you know Scott Ashton did, and so it was sort of a happy ending. But you're very clear that this wasn't 
it wasn't a kumbaya moment. I mean, this was a calculation on Iggy's part, and and I think they knew from their part there was lots of hurt feelings on their side. So it's just a fascinating story, and I think you talk about the conflicting emotions, and when when the point in the mid seventies, right around the time Iggy's at his personal low, the original bassist Dave Alexander dies, and Iggy hears about it and runs over to Ron Ashton's apartment, and they've broken up the studios at this point, and he jumps, runs in yelling xander's dead xander's dead and i don't care and that is so harsh yeah i do feel this story is almost kind of biblical for me you know and i guess when a writer says that maybe it is pretentious but for me you know sometimes when you spend more time with a story it becomes a bit more banal and it diminishes them but i still think the story of the stooges this this group of misfits is is an amazing one and then then actually what iggy went on to do himself you know without them you know the the great music in that he made with bowie in 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 berlin is phenomenal too but it's it's very hair raising you know and i guess ultimately that's because those guys were pioneers and in the cliche it's pioneers to get get all the arrows yeah right in the back and so (laughs) this you know, initially they come up sort of in the wake of the MC5, who were a phenomenon. I mean, the MC5 were basically inventing punk rock, hard rock, and heavy metal all at once in one big, hairy, sweaty package, drawing huge crowds in the Detroit and in the Midwest. They get signed by Danny Fields, who's, you know, not many A&R people can be called a genius or a seer, but I think Danny Fields has that reputation now because of you know discovering the Stooges and MC5 and the Ramones and, and so many others. But the Stooges managed, they were sort of, they were of that, but not of it. And when this, the MC5 had their political downfall, the Stooges were on a completely different path. How did they escape that backlash? Well, you know, speaking to people who were there around the time in Detroit, you know, there was definitely a conception that the Stooges were happening, that they were going to overtake the MC5, you know, and they, um, one of the roadies, I think it was Leo Beattie, he came over from the MC5 and he just said that the, you know, the Stooges were more fun, you know, and they had better looking women, you know, and the, there's all the entertainment of seeing what Nazi outfit Ron Ashton would, would wear that evening in the fun house where they all lived together. And, and there's this great dry humour, you know, when it comes down to it, the MC5 didn't have a hell of a sense of humour. You know, John Sinclair didn't. You know, I spent a lot of time with him and, you know, I liked him on one level. And yet um, he was very on one track, you know, whereas the Stooges were operating on a lot of different levels and then playing this monstrous music. So definitely in the run up to Funhouse, you know, there was really a feeling that the, the MC5 made, made that great first album and then you know, they were struggling to to better it and the Stooges had made a, a good first album then Funhouse was going to be like the ultimate statement and right at that time the roadies joined up you know the good looking young women joined up and it was all happening until you know really they all discovered cocaine and then heroin and they crashed and burned horrifically uh you know uh, overnight fashion you know like a kind of uh <laughs> you know, like like a an anti-drugs propaganda video is pretty much how it how it ended up. But they did it with the kind of style and panache. You know, um, Scott Ashton driving whatever it is a twelve foot van under a 
10 foot bridge on Washington Boulevard and peeling the top off it, you know, and then ending up in hospital having bitten through his tongue with their sacked sax player <laughs> called back in to play drums and then told off by Iggy for not getting a pattern right in the middle of a set, you know, where everybody's shouting at Iggy going, hey, come on, you junkie. You know, you <laughs> couldn't really, uh, I, I think for sheer dumb magnificence, it takes a lot of beating. And, you know, and and it was all true. You know, we, you know there were cert, certain stories that are, um, you know, when I investigated were different from the from the cliches. But, you know, everything was just as crazed as the legend. Yeah. And, and I want to segue to this intersection they had with the Velvet Underground, where John Cale produces their first album. Nico has a love affair with Iggy, even comes out to Ann Arbor and stays with him for a while. This, I mean, it was right at the time when they were parting ways with the MC5, and your description of Kale as a producer is that, you know, he's not quite successful. He doesn't quite figure it out the way Don Gallucci, who produces Funhouse, does, but he still captures the Stooges' first album. I mean, how much of the magic of the Velvet Underground was rubbing off on the Stooges, and how much of it was sort of in spite of of that New York intellectual scene. I think they totally rejected that kind of New York intellectual aspects. Um, but I think they liked John Cale because um, he, you know, had charisma. I think it was with Betsy Johnson then. In, and according to, to Iggy or Jim, you know, Cale turned up in a cape. I think that's great production because I, I think it's a very kind of clear production. And I think it's nice to have the contrast of that with a kind of intensity and madness of Funhouse. So Funhouse is certainly more what they had in mind. And and I think actually, you know, Iggy would at certain times dismissed it as a kind of art house production. But I think that precision really works, too. And, you know, I personally love the production, although I did end up in a massive argument with John Cale. who got really funny when... Uh, you know, when I said, you know, there's definitely a certain um, consistency between horses and the and the and the Stooges. You know, the Stooges, that album sits in a different space to the other one, and he thought I meant they were toning it down, and I didn't. You know, and um, it's just a different take. You know, and I, I personally like that. Although I think, you know, Funhouse is the ultimate statement. Um, I think they're both great in in different ways and i say that as somebody who you know i use the word fan earlier well you know my beginnings as a rock fan were always of disappointments you know always getting the latest album um by john lennon like mind games when i was in my early teens and just thinking this isn't really very good you know and then therefore wanted to bail out of people and and then often thinking people will only make one good album and the stooges made three great albums you know uh, but all, all of them are different and that in itself is um it's a real a real achievement and i think kale did a lot um but so i don't i personally don't think of that album as a as a failure i think it's beautiful and in a different way because it does it doesn't smack you in the face it kind of it sidles up behind you and kind of and, and and kind of reels you in bit by bit yeah i mean it definitely has the hit singles such as they are for the Stooges, you know, 1969 and No Fun and and I Want to Be Your Dog, the songs that are most covered by other bands. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean to denigrate it either, but it's just that you compare it to this monumental achievement of Funhouse, you know, an album that Henry Rollins writes an entire 
feature article in Spin Magazine about it, you know, 15 years after it comes out. I mean, this is an album that the, the, the grunge movement in Seattle, you know, saw as holy text. And I think you do a great job of telling the story of Funhouse and crediting Don Gallucci, the producer, who's a really unsung guy in, in pop culture. But for a guy who played keyboards on the Kingsman's version of Louie Louie and produced Funhouse, I mean... That's a pretty incredible resume. And how did he capture the magic of the Stooges in Funhouse? I think, I think you're entirely right. And 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 I think talking about the two albums, well, it is important to say that that Funhouse is a hundred percent of the way there. That is what made you know, it kind of captured what it, it was meant to do. It, it's perfection in a way, you know, and the and it never lets up and that was down to Gallucci and the engineer um the the British engineer called I think Byron Ross Myring and I think Gallucci just told me he wouldn't have he couldn't get them to work any other way you know they were very truculent and he found Iggy very difficult to deal with and it was Ashton who was the kind of um the kind of go-to guy that he'd try and communicate with and it's just they tried it the normal way and it just wasn't working. And according to to Don, you know, they wouldn't even really communicate why they weren't happy. You know, it just wasn't really working or they just ignore him or they could be really, really unpleasant to people, you know, and blank you and zone you out or or come up with nicknames for you or whatever. So he had to really sweat to get it working and do it the opposite way of how an album's supposed to be recorded. And I think you're right, it's an inspired production. I don't and no I guess there are jazz albums that are all recorded in one take with everybody doing everything at once. And so I suppose those kind of antecedents would have been in his mind. But to do it, you know, with a bank of marshals and, and Iggy with a handheld mic and the mic distorting and all that bleed from everything, you know, that was just really throwing the rule book out the window. Um, but, you know, when he spoke about it to me, it wasn't like it was a brainwave. It's just that was the only way it could be done. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's clearly inspired. And it's interesting the way Gallucci plays this role in the Stooges' career. I mean, first, he is this incredibly sympathetic producer who captures their masterwork. But at the same time, you reveal, I think it's your reporting that for the first time to reveal it, that he's the one who made the decision to cut them from Elektra Records and not produce a third album with the Stooges. And historically, you know, Danny Fields and others have blamed that on, and I'm blanking on the guy's name, but an executive that was number two to Holtzman, who was a very Bill, conservative guy. Yeah, Bill Harvey. I've, I, I can't yeah, Bill Harvey. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Don Gallucci went down there with them and didn't really hear the songs. And I think he also realised they were still kind of doing the same thing. And the, and the last time, you know, it hadn't worked last time. So it was a very bizarre little kind of psychodrama. And all the more so when right at the end of the book, and I don't know how much of it is, is in the book, you know, I took Don to see the band at the Hammersmith Odeon when they're playing Funhouse and Iggy didn't turn up. And then, and then Scott Ashton said thank you to to Don, thank you to I want to say thank you to Don and my sponsors. It's just like it's the idea of what an official musician should be saying. And then, and then Ron Ashton was the only one who's like, oh Don, you know, it was great seeing you, and you know, and 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 for 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 Ron seeing Don at the end, there was this kind of definitely redemption about it but it was just so surreal and then don had, is now 
selling real estate and so i'd gone out with him and all of his california companions and they were telling me how you know nowadays in california it's always you always have your sake cold and not warm you know it's so yeah. californian i i can't even begin to communicate the the craziness of it all and yeah don just captured it and it is just part of the the crazy story because all of this happens again and again yeah i mean it's the echoes and, and i think one of the pivotal things that turned him off from doing the third album with them was Ron Ashton's Nazi obsession. Talk about that a little bit. Well, okay. I shall level with you because when I wrote Ron Ashton's, um, obituary in, in Mojo, I was actually stuck in, in the snow out in, in New York at the time that, that um, plane crashed on the Hudson. It was a really cold winter. And I'd heard rumors he wasn't well. And then I was, I was just in America, you know, not too far away from where I'd been when somebody called up and told me that they're pretty sure he died. And um, so, and I wrote an obituary and I, you know, when you look at your own writing, it's like looking at your own picture. It, sometimes it irritates you. But the Ron Ashton piece, I just wrote in this kind of dream state and, and I like it. It's a piece of writing, you know. M might not feel that about all my writing. But when I sent it into Mojo, they only changed one line, which is I'd, I'd said about one of his... He told me that one of his heroes was Reinhard Heydrich. And they said, I don't think you can put that in. It's just, just too much. You know, people can't handle it. And I said, well, he did like Erwin Rommel as well, so let's put Erwin Rommel in. And so I had to compromise and just just, just have another facet of, of Ron to talk about Erwin Rommel Um and I know these days, you, you know, I know a guy got sacked for saying Erwin Rommel hadn't looked good, but he did look, he did look good. It was Hugo Boss, you know. Um, but Reinhard Heydrich, that's definitely unpalatable. And, you know, my I've got relatives who were murdered by the Gestapo. And, yeah, that was wrong. It's just kind of like there was something mentally different about him. And he talked to me about, you know, we would talk about it and, he said how Hitler was the first pop star. And that is certainly a line that David Bowie copped, you know, and repeated later on. And it was part of the whole thing of, um, um, it, you know, in 1969, you were kind of, you were kind of, rejecting all the old mores and coming up with your own ones. And so a lot of it was a hippie thing of, you know, do what annoys the man. And I guess I, adjusted for it but i think well ron's actually a very kind person you know i never heard he wasn't racist you know when he talked you know when he talked about you know the black guys who were his friends you know he absolutely wasn't racist i didn't talk to him about you know the holocaust but you know i talked to him on the basis that you know that that reinhardt hydro was a, a horrifying character and it, it was just a part of him you know and it's something interesting to deal with isn't it because that's unpalatable and what do you say do you say i'm not going to have any more truck with this guy because he's because he's just talked about ryan Hart hydra and there would be justice in doing that as well but i know gita sereni when she interviewed albert speer who was a monster she kept talking to him you know when there's stuff that's bad you can't necessarily just say i'm going to I'm going to give up and walk away. You, you keep talking to them. And it it was unpalatable. I mean, it's interesting because his dad died young and his dad was in the services and, and how they communicate to each other was his dad, you know, he, Ron liked the, 
you know, like Nazi uniforms to the first Nazi helmet or whatever he had, his dad had bought for him. And it's a way in which they communicated. And then Ron made a film on a boat that's called Hitler on the Moon, you know. So it's, uh, what can you say? It's just surreal. And um, But I would say Ron was a kind person and I liked him, even with all of that. What can I yeah. say? I mean, it seems like it was more of an aesthetic obsession, although Heydrich, you know, for those who don't know, Reinhard Heydrich was the number three person in the Nazi hierarchy, the architect of the final solution of the genocidal murder of millions of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and others. And, you know, was called the Butcher of Prague for his uh, uh, war crime atrocities uh, when he was the governor of, of occupied Czechoslovakia. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Rommel is one thing because he wasn't even really a Nazi. He was just in the army, the German army, serving the Nazis. But Heydrich was as Nazi as it gets. And so it's very, you know, hard to justify. So, yeah, there's definitely an, enig an enigma there. And, and I think one thing that's interesting to me is, is your book sort of tells the tale of how the Stooges are these sort of archetypal baby boomers in many ways. They're having the hippie experience, the rock band, but they go against the grain of the boomers in a way that anticipates the rebellion of the late boomer punk rockers and then the Gen X generation. And now, you know, Gen X is aging out. And so I wonder, you know, with, with Ashton's Nazi flirtation and then Iggy's, uh, you know, Iggy's downfall with heroin was because of an underage girl, Tina Fantuzzi, of the Coquettes. And that's something that, you know, the millennial generation is coming down really hard on aging rock stars about and uh i wonder do you think iggy's reputation is going to suffer in the me too era i have wondered about that because you know what when bowie died there's a quite a lot of talk about his um whether he had sex with laurie maddox yeah he was underage at the time and certainly said they had sex we don't know if she did or, or not and I'd heard about that. I, you know, when I wrote about that in the book, um, I'd merely reported her story without really um, embellishing it because I didn't know if it was if it was true, but I thought it was important to know it's true. And with Iggy, I think there was definitely, you know, there absolutely was, you know, exploitation of young women. You know, he was a mess. He was damaging himself for sure, and he damaged people around him. And I think he was also a selfish character and it would certainly be possible to look at everything and say, you know, we shouldn't listen to that music because he was an abuser. But I think it's, it's bigger than all of that because to me, the story about Jim Osterberg and Iggy in that book is about the damage he perpetrated on himself and on everybody else. But alongside that, we have to weigh the transformative power of the music and how it liberated all these lost, lonely, outsider people. So whilst there's an exploitative aspect to what he did, for sure, and this is an interesting area, uh, there was also a liberating um, aspect to it as well. And it's a bit like Lou Reed, you know, where people, you know, at certain points people said, well, you know, we can't, we don't want to listen to Walk on the Wild Side because it's, you know, turning these people into cliches. But, but Lou was the first, one of the first people who cared about those, you know, outsider people. And, and Iggy was for sure. But there's a lot of messiness 
associated with it and whether that will you know uh, hamper the reputation in the future i don't know because this is you know this has happened with lots of different people and you know it's been talked about a lot in the context of eric gill who's the great typographer um really invented in in some well he invented gill sounds which is one of the archetypal uh, modern fonts and he did but he did have diaries and his his biographer uh, fiona mccarthy at one point and um read a diary entry where he'd had sex with one of his daughters and um, who's underage and you know there's a lot of debate about that and certainly the daily mail would say they should take his sculptures off the front of bbc broadcasting house and i don't know i don't think they should but but there's no answer there's no perfect answer to all of that of, of music made by by flawed people and um and, and i think it is a question that certainly has to be asked um but there are no real stock answers but i think and as a writer i don't know what i should necessarily say you know i don't make a judgment but maybe that is um irresponsible but i see my job as actually showing what the facts are so in many cases i'm putting stuff on the record of what actually happened there's one woman who lived in texas who he spent a lot of time with who i think he treated awfully and i put all of that on the record and i guess i was worried that he'd come and sue me for libel but i knew it was all true you know so it's there's some pretty nasty stuff in there yeah for sure and but that didn't affect my view about the the music and and, you know, Iggy was a very, very damaged person. You know, we do have to remember in all of this that in many cases, the people we see as abusers are damaged themselves, you know. So it's not a, it's, it's not a case of, you know, the, black and, the morality is not black and white. It's complex, although it is, it is, you know, of course, entirely proper that we are looking at all this kind of behaviour in a, in a new context. Yeah, that and was I a long answer, but there we go. It's a complicated. <laughs> yeah, question. well, it's, a, it's it's a tough subject and something I've wrestled with. And I mean, personally, you know, they're gonna have to peel Funhouse out of my cold dead hands. But, um, you know, it's definitely something you know you think about when you expose your kids to this music and what do you tell your kids about what you believed in growing up and so forth. But I think one of the biggest character flaws, and it was sort of a gift, but but a flaw that you wrestle with a lot in the book is his relationship with his partners. Because Iggy wasn't like Prince or even David Bowie, where he could do it all himself. As musically talented as he was, he usually needed a co-writer for his music. And, you know, he had this pattern of working with and then sort of cruelly disposing of partners. And Ron Ashton's the first one to go in, the, in his demotion from guitar player to bass player. And then he brings in James Williamson who is described in very dark terms by most of his collaborators. What's the yeah. there, and who's the bad guy? I mean, James was a fascinating character as well, because I spent a lot of time with him when he was out in, you know, working for Sony in California. Then I saw him again. And in fact, when they were trying to get in touch with James it was it was me that they called for the number you know and that was weird um and James there was a lot of darkness there but 
to get back to the main question, you know, Iggy was intrinsically selfish. And for a lot of people, when they read the book, that really strikes them powerfully. And you know what? I'd say exactly the same thing with Bowie. You know, Bowie is much more civilized about it, but Bowie is innately selfish. So for a lot of people, they would read the book and go, oh, my goodness, is a selfish person. This is terrible. And but my context of that is is different, you know, because I was in a band and we made some user that, I, you know, is meaning, you know, has a, still holds a lot of meaning for me. And we had a drummer who was a bit unreliable. And one time we got offered a support tour with New Order. Then the drummer's, you know, having a problem with his girlfriend and wants to go on holiday and um, and kind of get back together, you know, with this lovely girlfriend. And we couldn't play. And could we do this? And could we do that? And you know what? If I wasn't meant to be a star, because if I was meant to be a star, or not even to be a star, to get that music at 100% and keep doing it and keep improving it, I would have been the kind of guy who just said, Okay, fine. We'll get this drummer down the road. And I thought about it and I wanted to be a nice guy and and didn't sack my drummer. And you know what? I spent about 10 years resenting the guy. It would have been better if I just sacked him. So sometimes the selfish option is is kind of quickest, most efficient one. And but nonetheless, you know, Iggy was you don't have to be gratuitously mean to people like Iggy did. And he, you know, and he absolutely did. And um you know, even when he talks about Bowie, you know, it's very, very multifaceted. And, you know, I had the great opportunity of speaking to him when I kind of knew everything. You know, I had everything on him. It's a bit like if I'd been a police officer, like, you know, it, it, it would have been beautiful to just unleash all the evidence bit by bit. But I couldn't really let him know at that point because I hadn't gone uh, public with a book. And, you know, he was telling me about little things. And I knew, you know, he, he was telling me about stuff he told me before. Then I'd asked other people about they Then they told me what the reality was, you know. So he talked about um, Funhouse, for instance, you know, and gave me all the spiel about how this was Osterberg's, um, you know, Fifth Symphony and how he came up with this and came up with all of that. I said, but, you know, Ron, but Ron did come up with these things, didn't he? He went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they said, and, and then Dave Alexander, he came up with Loose, didn't he? And then didn't he come up with the Funhouse riff? I think that was the one. He was like, yeah, yeah. And then, and then he just completely did a 100 degree, 180 degree about turn then, and told me how the music was all Ron's and he shaped it. You know, so it was, that was fascinating in, in a sense, seeing the kind of spiel and then knowing the reality behind. And yet, you know, Iggy is probably more honest than most other pop stars you could think of. But yeah, definitely for me to see, to get the whole story, all of those guys in a way, and to get to everyone and kind of know the totality of it all, it is quite immense, you know, of the brutality there and then to be chatting to the guy knowing what the brutality is and then at the end i do think of it like the book condeed where condeed goes around the world he's being abused he's only got half a buttock at the end and he but he's kind of made it through <laughs> and he and he's and that's okay too you know he, he's very very damaged but what is a life you know it's a, a life is it's got to be about creating stuff and making a kind of difference so in the end for all the all the kind of nastiness and, and, and a lot of evil behavior by various people. There's for me, there's kind of purity about the story too, kind of deranged purity. Yeah. And, and one difference between Bowie and Iggy, I think is that Bowie's ruthlessness was 
almost always in the service of his art. He was generally getting rid of somebody at the right time when their partnership had run dry and getting a new partner who uh, had it going on and brought something new to the table that Bowie wanted to explore aesthetically. Whereas with Iggy, he's so intuitive, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think as great as his collaboration with Ron Ashton was, his collaboration with Jane Williamson is awesome as well. And did so much to define the punk rock sound. I mean, I don't think you would have had people like Steve Jones and and The Clash and The Ramones worshipping at the, the foot of the Stooges as much as if it had been this, the Ron Ashton version. I mean, the James Williamson with that biting guitar attack and the, and the sloppy, low rhythm, you know, they basically didn't record the rhythm section on Raw Power. I mean, it inadvertently set the template for punk rock, and that was perfect. But then just a couple years later, you know, Bowie, and I want to get to Bowie because Bowie saved his life so many times. But, you know, he gets this band that Bowie helps him put together with the Sales Brothers, and they record Lust for Life, and they do this great tour. And at the end of the tour, you know, you say, you quote Iggy saying, You guys are like heroin, and I don't need you either. And just fires them, and then proceed, you know, he does one more good album, but then flounders for basically the, the next decade. And, and so at some point, that urge to shed people bit him in the ass artistically yes i think so and in terms of his use of collaborators and and i say this as somebody who was always cynical about bowie so i i guess i became understood bowie a lot better i i'd always thought of bowie as vampiric you know musically vampiric when i was a, a kid so he was almost you know he was almost like too mainstream for me that's what a snob i was and then but then I, I realized how, you know, Iggy was, he, you know, he wouldn't give his collaborators the same sort of space that Bowie would. You know, he wouldn't use people at their best in the way that, that Bowie would. You know, Bowie would give people a lot of freedom. And then if you look at the really good Iggy stuff, it's with the Stooges where he wasn't in charge. So they had to do what they were going to do. You know, he couldn't stop them. He could, he could channel it, but he couldn't necessarily... He could send it in a certain direction, but he couldn't turn it on or off. And, that, you know, that's what happened with all of the Stooges. And then the Berlin albums, again, it's kind of Bowie that's directing the the artillery or whatever. And um, and he just wasn't as good with, with collaborators. He didn't, you know, have, you know, he didn't have the same sort of chops. And I know when he talked to me about Bowie, he, he'd kind of, demean or diminish Bowie by kind of saying that he was a bit professional you know I can remember him saying to me one early interview of the three or four that we've done about you know Bowie's executive talents which is a great way of kind of putting somebody down but but Bowie wasn't an executive Bowie actually gave people kind of freedom and and, and he was much more of a control freak and yeah he sabotaged himself and um, we just sacked people for random reasons and you know one of the best uh, examples out of that is the album Soldier, which who knows what it would be like if it was all done properly. But he he certainly sabotaged that album. It's an awful album. You know, I do meet people every now and then who get upset with me because I can't stand the album. You know, but I bought it at the time. You know, I paid for it and it was just rotten. And I probably took it straight back to the uh, you know music and the book and record exchange in Hull. And, uh, yeah, and that was, you know, sabotaging himself and it happened a lot, you know, and, and Bowie did in a real sense rescue him, you know, so, uh, again and again and again, I mean, yeah. first 
he 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 gets the Stooges signed to RCA. He's responsible for the whole documentation of the James Williamson era of the Stooges. Signs him to his management company. That crashes and burns partly through mismanagement on Tony DeFries's part, Bowie's manager, and partly through the misbehavior of the Stooges. But then he rescues him again at his absolute low when he's in the gutter in Los Angeles. And 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 it's not easy. I mean, he first says, "Hey, Jim, let's work together." And you know they record one night, and then the next day Iggy sleeps in, and the night after that he's drunk, and and Bowie has to tell him to go away. But in short order, he's taking him on the station to station tour, and literally saving his life and his career. You know, and then and then co-writes all the music for for the Idiot and Lust for Life, Iggy's best solo albums, and then puts China Girl on Let's Dance and makes Iggy prosperous. You know, absolutely, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean. I should point out that he didn't write all the Lust for Life material, but the the idiot comes from Bowie. And you know what? There's those great songs like Nightclubbing. You know, that could have been a huge hit for Bowie himself. And then even later on, when Bowie's recording awful stuff, you know, around the time of Tonight, he gives him Shades. It's a beautiful song. You know, it's the best song Bowie wrote in the late 80s alongside Absolute Beginners. It's one of only two songs that are, are beautiful and not absolute stinkers, you know. So there was real, real generosity there. I mean, Bowie always had a, you know, he always had the eye on the main chance. He was looking after himself as well. I would say that, that when he first hooked up with the Stooges, that was definitely part of kind of co-opting your rivals. And that's what Bowie was doing, you know, so he'd, he'd write a song to Bob Dylan going, here you are, you know, I think you're great, as in, so I've acknowledged it, so you've got nothing over me. And that was kind of, when he took on Lou, I think he did more for him. But the Stooges are more difficult as well. There was a, there was generosity and there's definitely a sense in which those guys were part of this huge circus curated by David Bowie and therefore, you know, really helped him. But the, the stuff in Berlin, that was real genuine friendship. And in both books, you know, and I guess I thought about that friendship in, in different ways in, in in the Iggy and Bowie books, but it was very real and, and kind of very beautiful and, and great, great music came out of it. Some of which I... I think is still not really sufficiently appreciated today. I don't think the idiot is, is appreciated enough as an album because it's it's fantastic. Yeah, and that was another case of him being ahead of his time. I mean, punk had the scene had caught up with raw power, but by 1976, Iggy and Bowie are setting the template for new wave and post-punk. And well, that, yeah, absolutely post-punk. You know, because I was friends with the guys from Joy Division late in New Order and. The idiot was like a Bible for that. So they'd already gone beyond that other, you know, that other stuff. And if you just listen to the palette of of materials, you know, it's already way beyond, you know, what other people could handle. And I think Johnny Thunders went down to the debut of, you know, when Bowie was playing with playing keyboards with Iggy and, and the Sales Brothers, and they were playing a lot of the idiot music at Freya's in Ailes, Friars in Aylesbury and, and um, kind of Johnny Thunders was saying, well, that's cabaret. And, and uh, of course, you know, Johnny didn't realize that he could, and Bowie, they just moved on, Sunshine. You know, Johnny, we love you, but you'd recorded essentially the same kind of stuff again and again. And, you know, here is Iggy, he's done. He said what he needed to say, you know, with, with those three Stooges albums. And here he is with something else and showing the openness to new experience that does 
kind of revealed him as a great musician. You know, he, he needed to do that more often. That's one of the beauties of Bowie. He could get Iggy outside his comfort zone, you know, and that's a problem with some of Iggy's later material where he, he, you know, he likes to be inside his comfort zone, which isn't a place where you make great art necessarily. No. And, and he, you know, I think you chronicle his eighties and nineties albums pretty well. And there's some gems in there, American Caesar and others, but I mean, Iggy's real triumph in that period was getting cleaned up and being healthy and being able to be just an incredible live performer. I saw him several times in the eighties and the dude brought it. And that was, I think such a part of his rehabilitation of his reputation was just, he became a showbiz professional who could be counted on to deliver a really killer rock and roll show. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the thing is that, you know, we've talked all about all of this and the music and, and the thing is, he's just a great front man. So even when I've seen him with uninspired bands, He's been great. You know, so I've seen the Stones a lot of times, and I've seen them give a lot of awful shows, frankly. And uh, I've never really seen Iggy given an awful show, even with, you know, mediocre musicians. He's still really got it, you know. And, uh, you know, for me, obviously seeing him with the Stooges again was um, supernatural. But, you know, he's always, always delivered. And that, in a way, is the kind of the beauty at the heart of the story. And there's an irony about it because the, uh, when I was writing the book, you know, the, the end bits came really nicely and I was just thinking about it all. And I was thinking what makes all the, all the pain and the suffering and the deaths, you know, and the drugs, what makes it all worthwhile? It's the purity of that music where this old fella just somehow taps into something eternal and just floats off out onto the stage like a spring lamb and it's just so it's you know miraculous it's so redemptive it's beautiful <laughs> but in the american paperback there was um uh, a, a text rerun and they lost the final parrot from the uh oh. from the american paperback but hey you know shit happens <laughs> <laughs> do you th- do you have any fantasies or intentions to to write an update of it because you know you ended up published it before the Hall of Fame induction, before Ron Ashton's death, which, as sad as it was, um, it's hard to feel. I mean, you know, he had a great life in some ways and, and had the big reunion, but that allowed the Stooges to do a tour with James Williamson, which I felt was, was also kind of heartwarming that he got redeemed and welcomed back into it, the circle. It was. And, and actually, um, I have thought about updating it. Um, but it's hard um, in terms of just the flow to kind of get back into that story and feel it again. It's quite a hard thing to do. And then with James, it's a kind of, um, um, it's almost the same thing happening. You know, Ronnie's had his redemption and then James has had his redemption. So it doesn't have the same force as a story, but I could do, you know, I, um, I don't think it's it was as necessary to. I mean, I did update the book with the. I did do one update of the book, and um, I think for the paperback, which is in quite a lot of the foreign editions, but I, I tend to think, it's you know that, the ending still feels, sufficiently fresh, and now you know with Iggy being back, you know, and and, and actually delivering and somehow surviving, you know that still holds um, 
you know, I, I think it's still valid today. Whereas, you know, with the Bowie book, I felt more driven to to update that. But yes, in a sense, I, I think at some time, you know, I will update it. But I think it might be literally like a 20 year anniversary or something. There's 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 been presumptuous four years in thinking people will still care in 20 years. But if they want it, you know, 20 years, they can have it. Believe me. Uh, authors don't get paid for updates. <laughs> uh, industry uh, info for you there. It's just something you do out of love to keep it current, you know, and, and often people are more enthusiastic about a new, um, you know, a new print, etc. But then sometimes they complain if you want to do an update because it means they've got to, you know, get it. It costs them more money, you know. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, there we are. There's, uh, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I find the whole story with James interesting and that sometime I probably will readdress all of that you know james being friends with iggy again then falling out with him i believe and then then there's the fallout of the the stooges a bit you know it gets a bit messy that story so maybe i i just have reservations because at the moment we have a happy ending and and i don't want to say well it's happy but not quite that happy like this stuff happened as well you know what i mean yeah Um, so there we are yeah Um, Yeah. but it, it is it is a story I still think about all the time. So I, I take that on board that maybe you could do that dating, but maybe a few years from now. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for documenting, you know, the story of Iggy Pop. Cause this is definitely the definitive biography of him. And I think he's an artist who merits it and, you know, was overlooked in his peak artistic years. And so this this is quite an achievement. And thanks so much for being on the show. And I look forward to having you back to talk about your David Bowie book because these two stories are so intertwined and there's so many aspects to explore. Mm. Thanks, Nate. You know, I think about the Iggy book now this few years back and I do feel it was kind of um, a privilege to do it. You know, in a way, I felt like I deserved it because I just put more work in than most people do to a book you know it took a lot of time and a you know a lot of effort going out things like high school reunions yet in another sense you know i was so so blessed because it was just the the perfect story and i still care about those people now and i think about them quite often so even just to be a bit of a fly on the wall you know was was a privilege so i'll always be grateful for having done that book so and it's good to talk about it and you asked me some good questions as usual so thanks a lot nate Thanks so much, Paul. Take care. Thanks for listening. Next week, join Paul Trinka and I again for a discussion of his biography of David Bowie. Be sure and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. Paul Trinka's Iggy, Open Up and Bleed, is available from Three Rivers Press, wherever fine books are sold. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.